Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Welcome back for another episode of Revolution Recap, coming to you after a two-game week for the New England Revolution. The Revolution on Wednesday fell 2-1 to Minnesota United, and on Saturday fell 2-0 to the Red Bulls. We'll save talk of the Red Bulls game for a little later in the show and start off with the Minnesota United game. Uh, in this game, the Revolution, uh, traveling on the road against a Minnesota United team that hasn't been the best this year, fell behind in just the fifth minute um, through a Christian Ramirez goal, and then again fell two goals behind on a stoppage time goal uh, through Darwin Quintero. Uh, the Revs did pull one back in the 52nd minute on a Diego Fagundes penalty kick, which... Uh, to be fair, it was kind of a freebie given to them by Minnesota. As I believe it was Kellen Road was dribbling away from goal, not in a very dangerous spot, was pushed over from behind. So it was a clear penalty kick, but at the same time, not really a dangerous situation created by the Revs to earn it. Um, and the Revolution, again, struggled to score from the run of play in this one, uh, which made it difficult to come back from that two-goal deficit and ended up finishing 2-1. to one. Um, With that, we have Brian O'Connell and Greg Johnstone joining us today. Uh, Brian, what were your takeaways from this disappointing loss for the Revolution, their, their second loss uh, in a row, which was followed by their third loss in a row, which we'll talk about later? Yeah, I think the most disappointing thing, there's a lot to talk about as far as disappointments go from that Minnesota game. And I, but I think the most disappointing thing was to see two basically egregious defensive errors, mental lapses, if you will, um, that led to both of Minnesota's goals. Obviously, uh, Andy Baba's botched header put basically set up uh, basically set up Christian Ramirez for the opening goal five inside of five minutes. And um, and then obviously the second goal from, uh, from, from Darwin Quintero just absolutely torches three Ravs defenders in the process. I mean... Uh, I know the broadcast team of Brad Feldman and um, Paul Mariner were both saying that's a quality goal. And then when they interviewed Brad Friedel at halftime, Friedel's like, no, that was not a quality goal. It should have been should have been stopped by at least three different players. Um, so I think uh, I think the fact that they're just, you know, that the mental lapses are still are still an issue with this team. And, uh, and I think that was definitely uh, visible uh, on full display during the uh, during the Minnesota game. So that was my biggest takeaway. The um, the mental lapses just absolutely killed them that game. Well, you talk about the mental lapses, and one thing I forgot to mention before we jumped into this game were the, the lineup changes, um, and some of them were forced. There was the Zahibo, I mean, Caicedo, who was out with a yellow card accumulation, and Scott Caldwell started for him. Uh, Pania was out with the with the red card, um, so Kellen Rowe got a start. Uh, and then, of course, De La Mayo was out with a yellow card, so they moved Andrew Farrell um, into center back and put Brandon Byatt right back. And then the one change that wasn't forced was Claude Dielna, who was benched for this game with Gabriel Somi, who up to that point had seemed to be in the doghouse getting the start at left back. So they're instead of keeping their center back pairing, or, or I should say instead of moving Dielna into center back next to Andy Baba, they moved Farrell into center back and just outright benched Dielna. Um, and I think we talked about last week how you know, a lot of people were blaming Dielna for, for the loss to the Galaxy um, and his mental mistakes, but it seemed like they bent, benched Dielna and there were just as many <laughs> mental individual mistakes in this game as there there was in the last one, even with uh, that lineup changes. So th- if you're going to bench guys for these individual mistakes, you're starting to run out of defenders. Yeah, it's uh, it was definitely a, a case, it seemed like it was a case of that, um, you know, uh, d- during uh, Wednesday's game. And I just, uh, you know, it, it it's just amazing how those kinds of happen like i can understand it happening okay it happens once i mean you know no team plays perfect uh plays a perfect soccer game but the fact that it ha- that occurred twice 
Um, you know, obviously there were changes and obviously there may have been a little bit of unfamiliarity between Anibaba Zahibo and Somi on that sequence where Quintero scored because they really haven't played a lot late together lately. But still, I mean, just the, the just the just the passive the passive attitude um, in that sequence where they just kind of basically let him go and take the shot um, near at the near post. It was just kind of startling. I mean, you want to see more urgency from your defenders, especially if if guys like Zahibo and Somi are getting second chances, I mean, you know, if there's a time to prove yourself, this is the game. And they basically, I know it was just one sequence, but they basically just allowed Darwin Quintero to just walk in and take, take an open shot and beat Matt Turner. And the other thing too, guys, I'll add is that it seemed like that back line was really sloppy with the ball, the entire game. Um, I mean, obviously the Anibaba play uh, that led to the first goal is going to be on the highlight reel, but there were a number of times where, between Farrell and Anibaba and Turner, they, they were kind of turning the ball over. They were really sloppy. They, they failed to clear the ball or they'd try to Turner, I think tried kicking it once and it kind of popped it up to Farrell and he didn't control it. And it led to a, a one-on-one or a breakaway the other way. Th- there were a lot of times where that back line was really kind of um, play, playing fast and loose with the ball. And Minnesota probably should have put in another one or two in that game. They're, they're kind of lucky that they kept it to a, a one goal game. So, um, I think that back line of by Farrell, Anibaba, and Somi is kind of your shakiest back four um, of the players in the rotation currently. And uh, I think it certainly showed with them uh, last week. Um, I think the Quintero goal, too. I do think there was a bit of skill on Quintero's part, but uh, it's absolutely correct that, you know, uh, I think uh, De La May and uh, Caldwell and Somi, too. Somi could have came in on the other side. Um, I mean, they were basically just traffic cones on that play, and Quintero just walked right around them. Uh, it's pretty astonishing, and you just really expect better from those guys. Uh, I was just going to say on that one, it, uh, it seemed like you know, there were, you know, De La May was out for this one, but I think you met Zahibo, who had a chance to, to win it. Caldwell had a chance to win it. Uh, Somi had a chance to win it. They all lunged in and, and just missed. Um, and part of it, you know, Andy Baba got pulled out of where he was supposed to be, and it was just a, a disaster on that second goal. Uh, but you know, and you mentioned the the, the fullbacks and the turnovers. Um, you know, we'll, again, we'll talk about the New York game later. In that game, there was certainly rain played a, a role in the Revs' horrible passing. But both fullbacks in this game for the Revolution passed at fifty-five percent, which is pretty atrocious. Um, and there's no weather to blame for this one. So <laughs> it, it was just you know turnover machines from the fullbacks. Um, but with that, Greg, could you want to get to your takeaway? Uh, my takeaway is that uh, Bobby Shuttleworth can apparently make saves on uh, near post shots now. Um, <laughs> I, I think after watching years of Bobby Shuttleworth kind of leave that near post kind of uh, open and kind of be in his weak spot, I think uh, Claude Yelna, <laughs> with that nice service to Scott Caldwell, uh, I think I think for that shot to be saved and, and to keep Minnesota with the uh, game-winning goal, it kind of felt like it was one of those nights. And uh, you got to tip your cap to Bobby Shuttleworth. It's uh, good to see him. <laughs> yeah, I, I think he certainly gave them uh, two points uh, in that game. He, he certainly kept them in the game and, and had a couple quality saves. So uh, good to see old friend Bobby Shuttleworth uh, coming up at quite possibly the worst possible time for us. So, um, But my, my other takeaway, too, I just want to point out is that um, I thought Kellen Rowe didn't have his best performance. I thought I think with Kellen Rowe kind of coming in off the bench, um, you know, he had some high expectations coming in. Um, I didn't think he really did anything to uh, separate himself. He did draw that penalty, but I don't think that was really uh, more so him drawing a foul as opposed to Minnesota making a dumb foul. Um, I thought uh, he kind of left something to be desired, and I was kind of disappointed he didn't uh, show off what he could have done because I think a good re- good performance from him might have uh, kept him in the lineup. 
Yeah, it was a big opportunity for him to to step up, getting a, finally getting a chance to start with with all the suspensions, um, and and getting to get more time centrally too. But it, it was disappointing. I agree from him because you know all this year we've expected him to finally step up and make that impact and and find a way to to make it work in Friedel's system. But it just hasn't really happened from from Callan Rowe this season. Um, and for all the quality he has, I think it's you know, disappointing that uh, he hasn't been able to do more this year. Yeah, I think I think that game, I think the Minnesota game just pretty much solidified um, if it hadn't already just how how much he just just does not kind of fit into Friedel's system. Um, obviously, he's more he seems to be at his best when he's more of a 10 rather than a winger. And that, that was his opportunity to get more of a tip to play more centrally. And he just kind of unfortunately just really didn't play all that well in that game, at least not well enough to uh, to where people are were. You know, one would think that you know, okay, well, this is the this is Callum Rowe of old. This is the Callum Rowe that can help you, um, not only off the bench but also as a starter. Um, but I just I think he did almost nothing in that game to really kind of convince the coaching staff that he's uh, he's worthy of a spot in the eleven. Yeah, and and on that note, I kind of wanted to jump into my takeaway, which is a bit through both games, but also notably from the Minnesota game because we saw both Somi and Dielma play left back, and that's just you know we've been hitting on it all season, but. DL is not the answer at left back either. Both of these guys have not been getting it done. The, the passing has been atrocious. Uh, Dielna finished at 50% on Saturday. I believe on Wednesday he was at 62%. Somi was at 55%. Um, they're not creating enough offensively. Defensively, they've been awful. I think Dielna uh, a lot of times doesn't look like he wants to defend. It looks like he wants to be some sort of attacking winger, but he doesn't have the skill set to do so. Um, when Dielna wants to defend, I think he's solid at it, but... A lot of the times, it seems like he just wants to bomb forward and forget about his defensive duties. We saw it on, on Saturday in Los Angeles, which got him benched. Uh, you know, the, the lazy play late in the game that, that helped cost him a couple goals. Um, and I think we saw it in, in both of these games where defensively he just didn't do enough. Um, so that's just an area that, especially with Chris Tierney now not being an option and out for the season, uh, you know, they, they really need to go out there and find another left back to, to solve this the situation because right now I think the situation they have at left back is is just untenable. And you mentioned Kellen Rowe with as bad as he's been for the team this year. You almost wonder if with the left back situation until they can pull somebody in. If you know, do you give Kellen Rowe another another opportunity at, at left back? Um, you know, we all talked about how that's a waste of his talent in the past, but you know, this year with him not fitting the system, uh, maybe that's the answer. What do you guys think about possibly at this point in the season, you know, given Kellen Rowe a shot, given that, you know, it's not working for him in midfield and it's not working for the Rebs with anybody else at left back. I think you have to consider all options at this point. I mean, it's clearly not working with either Somi or Dielna, especially Dielna of late. And for, for Dielna to get the armband stripped from him and, you know, given to Andrew Farrell in yesterday's game, um, I, I think you have to consider all options. I think at least until you bring in another player, um, which, you have to think that uh, you know getting a, a quality left back, quality right back, or any anything that helps address the left back situation. Um, you know, until they do that, um, you do have to consider all options because you know you do have a player like Helen Rowe who has played the position. You know, we're not saying he's going to play left back for the uh, for the U.S. national team, um, but the fact is, you know, if 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 you have that if you have that kind of player who has shown um, you know the capability of playing it at a semi-decent rate. I mean, why not give him that opportunity if really he's kind of not playing anywhere else at the moment? So um, it's clear that he's not he's not fitting into the system as far as, you know, anywhere in the in your your attacking third. But so why not just so why not just give him the opportunity? At least give him a look at left back, um, considering all the considering all the failures that they've had to date. Yeah, and I agree with that. Um I, I still think I 
prefer Delna over there. I know he's had a bit of a rough few weeks, um, and I know he's kind of falling out of favor quickly uh, with with Brad Friedel, it seems like. Um, but I think the fact that uh, Gabriel Somi wasn't in the 18 yesterday, I think that indicates that either Brandon Bay or Kellen Rowe was the backup left back option. Um, and, and Kellen Rowe, I mean, to his credit, did play suitably at left back last uh, last year. So um, I, I think, too, in Brad Friedel's system, the wingbacks are, or the fullbacks, I should say, are heavily involved in the game and heavily involved in moving the ball up the field. And so, you know, they, they typically are leading the team in touches. Um, they're typically involved in overlap, and they're typically involved in going up and, and making plays uh, in the attacking half. Um, so, I mean, in that sense, I know he's kind of a square peg in a round hole, but, um, you know, you'd be getting Kellen Rowe involved in the offense. I know it's not really his preferred position, but um, I don't think it's that terrible of a fit considering the other options we currently have. Um, And to be honest with you, I was really a fan of the Claude Dielna at left back um, at first, but I I think he's kind of shown the past couple of days that um, he does get too aggressive out there on on the the left side. He seems to be a little bit more conservative at center back. I know he's kind of aggressive overall, but um, he, he seems to be making dumber and dumber fouls and, um, and you're right. He he wants to go up. He wants to get involved in the attack. And, um, you know, while that's great, it just isesn't really working out. So I, I don't mind Kellen Rowe uh, getting a, maybe a spot start in that position and kind of seeing how he fits because Somi certainly isn't working out. And Claude Diana probably won't work out. I, I still have hope that he will because I think he does provide some um, value on crosses and on long balls. Uh, but overall, I, I think he might be more suited to be a center back. Well, and it's interesting you mentioned Brandon Bay too. Uh, one thing worth noting was when De La Maya on Saturday got hurt early and it looked like he was going to be subbed off, it appeared that Brandon Bay was the guy who was going to go in for him. So I guess it, it, that's a note that, you know, next on the depth chart at left back, because my assumption is Dielno would have moved to, to center back and, and Bay would have played left back as, as Brandon Bay. Um, so maybe we'll see him uh, in a couple of weeks when the Revolution play again. But that, that was interesting for me. Um, did you guys or- have- Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, or they prefer Andrew Farrell at center back over Dielna, and they put by at right back. But that seems backwards to me. Yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> That's a good point too. They could have they could have ended up doing uh, something like that as well. Um, but did you guys have any last uh, thoughts in the Minnesota game before we jump to the New York game? It was just bad. I'll, <laughs> I'll take that as a as a no. Um, <laughs> so so let's jump forward to Saturday's game against the Red Bulls. Uh, this one, the Revolution, I thought, played a, a half-decent first half in that they kept the Red Bulls um, from getting too many dangerous chances. Uh, Teal Bunbury had a, a chance that he should have put away, I thought, that he was in on goal, and, and Robles did well to come off his line, but you know, had Bunbury slotted into the corner, it would have been an easy strike. Instead, he, he hit it right at the keeper, um, who made the save. And then the second half was really all Red Bulls, with uh, Daniel Royer scoring in the 69th minute and Bradley Wright Phillips putting it away in the 80th minute. Um, again, some some mental miscues by the the Revolution here as uh, Royer scored on a, a set piece in which Matt Turner went for the ball and didn't get it, and then Andrew Farrell did not track Royer, so he was in alone on goal. Uh, and Brad Friedel called out Claude Dielna for giving up a sloppy foul that led to the set piece. Um, so lots of blame to go around there. And then on the the final goal by Bradley Wright Phillips, uh, Annie Baba just let him go free. The two were, were together, and a cross was put in, and it was just him and, and Bradley Wright Phillips. But Bradley Wright Phillips took off, and Annie Baba didn't stay close enough to him, so made it for an easy finish for him as well. Um, so lots of a sloppy defensive play in this one. And 
even just in the second minute, the Revolution gave up a, an open header um, on a on a on a corner kick to to Long that um, was was crazy because Fagundes, who's five foot eight, was guarding the six foot one Long on a set piece, which just makes no sense to me, particularly in the second minute, that they'd get their marks that wrong. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot to digest from this one. Uh, the Revolution only managed one shot on goal, and it was that Bunbury chance. Um, so just not much offense created. Uh, but with that, Greg, what, what was your takeaway from from this one? Uh, my takeaway kind of hurts, uh, but I think we've learned that Matt Turner is human. Uh, he does make mistakes. Um, I know Claude Yelna is going to get a lot of the blame for that foul, which was pretty inexcusable. Um, it was kind of a dumb position to foul someone in. Uh, but the ensuing free kick, Matt Turner kind of get caught and got caught in no man's land. Um, he seems to hesitate and then decides to go for it and then whiffs on the punch. And um, there was a, another Red Bull uh, attacker coming in. I, I, I don't remember who it was, but um, even if the, it, it looked like Turner was trying to beat him to the ball. And even if that, even, even if the ball didn't go through the Red Bull attacker would have been there for the header. So uh, Matt Turner just kind of caught, caught in no man's land. I think that's the first time we really seen him, uh, kind of fall apart and kind of make a big mental miscue. So um, I, I thought of the the second goal, I, I don't think was his fault. I think, as you, you mentioned, Sean, I think Anibaba just kind of gave him a little too much space and um, Bradley Wright Phillips is going to punish you when you give him an open header in the box. But um, I, I think that first goal was really a backbreaker for the Revs. They were really kind of holding on and they, they seem to have been, uh, I don't want to say playing for a point because I don't think that's the mentality this team has, but um, I, I think it certainly took some wind out of their sails. And, um, you know, I, I think Matt Turner, that was uh, one of his weaker performance of of the season for the revolution uh, mostly because of that miscue i think that as i say that really changed the outcome of the game last night yeah and just to add on, on matt turner i thought the other thing that wasn't his best was his distribution in this game and i i, f- I forget when it was but I, there was one point in the first half i believe where he had a where he either threw it or, or what exactly happened but he gave it right to the red bulls and created a chance for them that didn't end up in a goal um but you know he's been a we've talked earlier in this the season about his distribution and what an improvement it's been over Shuttleworth and, and Knighton and some of that certainly falls on Brad Friedel and adjustment and how the revolution actually play from the goalkeeper spot um, but this game I thought was one of his weaker ones as far as distribution too so yeah it, as good as Matt Turner has been um, this game wasn't one for the highlight reel and with that we want to uh, jump on to uh, Brian's takeaway yeah I mean I think this I think the thing that obviously they're more mental kind of mental miscues in this game as well defensively. But I think the the most troubling thing for me in this game was that was the lack of offense from the revs presumably, I mean, from the revs first, basically first, first team offense. I mean, I mean, you know, we didn't see a lot of offense in the Minnesota game and granted they were, they were missing Pena and Caicedo, but this game they have Pena and Caicedo back. Um, but they are only able to generate, like you had mentioned earlier, Sean, they're only able to generate one shot on goal. And uh, and the just the the dearth of opportunities uh, for the revs uh, was just kind of I think that was the most troubling thing when you do have when you do have your your first uh, your first choice offense essentially out there and you're only able to generate one shot on goal and you basically are only able to get that one shot from Teal Bunbury it was just um, you know you saw you saw moments from uh, Fagunas you saw I uh, really didn't see much from Agadell really didn't see much from Pena either. Um, which is also a little bit uh, a little bit uh, concerning because this seemed like the kind of game uh, you know the games in which that you know the the grass plays fast um, like like last night's game where uh, you know obviously you had a slick surface it seems like that kind of those kinds of conditions usually seem to benefit this team and the fact that it really didn't um, obviously their passing was atrocious at fifty four percent 
But the fact that guys like Agudelo and guys like Pena really didn't have that much of an impact, any impact from what I could tell, um, was also a little troubling. And maybe it's a byproduct of you know playing their uh, their third game in, in eight days. It might have been that. But it just seemed like that the, the rhythm was off. Um, there just really wasn't a lot of cohesion in the midfield. And um, you know you're gonna need you're gonna need at least one goal to get a point from the from from the Red Bull. Uh, one goal to get at least uh, to get a result from the uh, Red Bulls at home because they always figure out a way to score at home. Yeah, and I want to kind of build off of that point about um, kind of out of rhythm. Uh, it seemed like the Revolution, you know, they they sometimes play some long balls and they kind of go on the counterattack, and it just didn't seem like any of their long balls were connecting. Um, the one that really stood out to me was uh, in the 48th minute. There was a play at midfield where. Uh, the Revs got a turnover, and Juan Agadella had the ball. It looked like Diego Fagundes was making a long run, and uh, Pena was on the left wing, and Agadello kind of boots it long, and it's kind of between them both. And uh, Robles kind of comes out of net out of his out of the 18-yard box and kind of clears it, and it turned into a nothing chance. But if he puts an accurate ball to either Pena or Fagundes, they lead to a fast break, and he kind of put it in the middle of nowhere, um, and it just kind of spoke to how that night went, where. Just nothing really worked for the Revolution on offense. And again, it might have been the third game in eight days, but um, Juan Agadalo had a really quiet week between both games. Um, Christian Pena, you know, you know, as I say, he, sometimes he just kind of goes quiet. Um, he did have a really nice ball to Teal Bunbury when he kind of put some spin on it, and Teal Bunbury kind of mistimed it, it looked like, and it, he, he kind of actually accidentally kind of cleared the ball away from the box. So um, Padilla had some moments, but... Um, they just weren't really connecting, and I don't know if it was the weather. I don't know if they were just playing a superior team on the road. But, um, yeah, the, the offense really just did not click at all last night. Yeah, and you mentioned the long balls. They attempted 50 of them in this game, and they connected on 17. So that was not an effective strategy at all, to to say the least, from the Revolution. Um, but as someone that really likes looking at stats, uh, the passing percentages were just atrocious in this one. And, you know, that just is a killer for the offense. Overall, the Revolution passed at 58%. They were even lower at 48% in the attacking half. Um, just not good from the Revs. And, and you look across the board at, at some of the numbers uh, from these guys. Andrew Farrell at 56%. Annie Baba at 60%. Dielna at 50%. Zahibo at 50%. Pania at 42.3%. Bunbury at 47.4%, Brandon Bay at 50%, Rowe at 45.5%. So a lot of these guys in the Revolution were passing the ball to the Red Bulls more than they were passing the ball to their own teammates, uh, which is never going to lead to a, a very successful result. And, and Brian, I know you, during the game you mentioned the rain, but how much of this can we blame on the rain and how much of this is just inexcusable? I think it was mostly just inexcusable. I mean, um, you know, I, you could you could blame the rain, blame the rain all you want <laughs> to to quote a certain song, but um, the fact is, like, you know, the, these are guys who have played well in the rain. Um, you know, I've always mentioned that guy, guys like Roe, guys like Agudelo, Bunbury, and and Fergunis, they've played in these conditions. They've played well in these conditions, and it just kind of surprised me more than anything else that. You know, they really that uh, in this kind of game, nobody, nobody really was was passing all that well. They saved for Fagunias, and even he was under eighty percent. Um, so I mean, it was just surprising to see a lot of these guys not not perform well. They, I don't, I don't know what it was. I just think that you know, when it comes to you know getting results on the road, you know, usually the first thing they say is you have to, you have to be really good at your fundamentals. And these guys weren't weren't passing. They like you'd said, they were passing, they were passing to to the Red Bulls. Uh, far too great a frequency so i just it's just completely inexcusable you, you can't play in the conditions they were both playing in the same conditions and i think that um i think that obviously the red bulls were the superior team and they certainly showed it 
Yeah, and outside of that, uh, Teal Bunbury chance in the first half, which was a great pass by Fagundes. I don't. I think yeah. we we can't really overlook that. That was an amazing pass, perfectly right. placed by Fagundes. Um, and you know, Bunbury could have done better, but that was also a hell of a save. Uh, perfect timing on the rush out and everything. So, um, but outside of that one chance, they really had nothing going all night. Um, Diego Fagundes created some passes. He had four four key passes. He kind of created some chances, but um, nothing super threatening. And then the only other thing that comes to mind was that Pania to Bunbury header that was kind of mishit. Uh, it was just really, really no nothing from the final third yesterday. At uh, And as I say, I, I don't think they were playing for one point because I don't think that's the mentality Brad Friel wants to have. But between the long balls and just nothing generating on offense, um, as the game went on, you certainly felt like the Revs, if they took one point, they'd be lucky. Um, and once that first goal went in, that that was kind of it. You can kind of <laughs> sense the air kind of coming out of their tires. Uh, just really nothing generated from the offense, really in either game. That The one goal they scored in, in Minnesota, too, was kind of handed to them. Um, I know they had more chances, but um, it looks like the offense is kind of slowing down on the final third. But what's interesting, too, is when you look at um... – a couple things here, and I just wanted to bring up Scott Caldwell because he played on Wednesday and started on Wednesday and then um, did not get the start against the Red Bulls. Uh, and of note, was he was their – he didn't even play against the Red Bulls, you say. And of note, he was their best passer against Minnesota at 90.6%. He's been their best passer on the season at 81.6%. He's a guy that, you know – is known for not turning the ball over and playing smart. Um, and Zahibo, I think, is becoming less and less known for that based in the past few games. Uh, is it time to give Scott Caldwell more minutes? And, you know, I think you look at their possible defensive midfield pairings, and Caldwell and Casado are both very undersized defensive midfielders. Zahibo uh, being on the opposite side, of, you know, very tall guy that's great great at winning balls in theory based on his height. Um, but is it time to, to try Scott Caldwell and Caicedo next to each other, the Revs' two best passers, to try to make that you know defensive midfield role be less of a, a turnover machine? And you know, in saying that, too, I, I think Zahibo's problems haven't just been passing. I think in the, in the Minnesota game, he didn't do enough to, to cover and get back at times. We talked about that the L.A. game. Uh, I don't think he's been having the, the best run of form either. Uh, so to me, it seems like there should be an opportunity for Scott Caldwell, who actually was their second-leading uh, guy in shots against Minnesota with three and two on target, to get more minutes. What do you guys think about about that change, potentially? Yeah, I, I think uh, I, I'm actually kind of surprised that Friedel didn't make a similar sub to the one he made uh, a few weeks back. I, I forget the exact game where he took off Sahibo and brought in Caldwell at halftime. I'm actually surprised that that you know Caldwell didn't even didn't even see the game. So I don't know if there was you know something there as far as rest goes, but I was just surprised that Caldwell didn't didn't enter that game and and that 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 kind of de- kind of decision wasn't made to uh, to help alleviate some of the, some of the problems that they were having in the midfield because even Friedel commented at halftime that there's there was just a lot of there's just a lot of uh, um, just a lot of lack there's just lack of quality in the midfield uh, you know connecting the midfield to the forwards and I'm just surprised that Caldwell d- didn't even see the field um, in a game that seemed to be calling his name. Yeah, and um, in terms of the question about uh, between Caldwell and Caicedo, I, I'm kind of browsing through previous lineups to see if they've been paired together before. And they did start together in the 3-2 uh, to victory against Toronto, where Giovinco came in halfway through the game. Um, so they, they have been paired before. I think, if I remember correctly, it kind of worked with okay results. Um, I think the, the argument against it is that Caldwell and Caicedo are two of the same players that Caldwell is almost Caicedo's backup and they kind of want kind of a bigger enforcer in Zahibo. I guess that's kind of what they, they, they want uh, 
in the, the central midfield pairing. But um, I mean, I think Scott Caldwell should be in the lineup. Um, as you say, Sean, uh, he kind of forces some turnovers. He makes some interceptions um, and he's doesn't turn the ball over much. Uh, he did make the mistake against Minnesota in that uh, Quintero goal. But um, overall, I mean, I, I think a good case can be made that you're two best players right now are Caicedo and Caldwell. Um, and I think you have to mix up the lineup, lineup a little bit. I think Zahibo's quality has been uh, poor in the most in, in recent weeks. So uh, I, I would give that the thumbs up of approval, um, but I, I'm not holding my breath out because it seems like for whatever reason, um, kind of like Cullen Rowe or they want him in as an offensive sub, Scott Caldwell, I think they kind of prefer as a uh, defensive sub who can kind of give you 30 minutes or 25 minutes of energy when they're, you're trying to close out a game. Yeah, and the other thing I will say with Zahibo is you look to your defensive midfielders to be guys that, in one thing, in one sense, clog the passing lanes. Um, and he's only ninth on the team in interceptions per game at 0.7 a game. Um, so I'm not sure he's contributing enough from that role, and particularly given you know the sloppiness of of his passing in this last game. Uh, if, you, if it's time for the revolution to certainly try something else there, because it's it's just not working. Um, and before, well, actually, before we wrap things up on, on this game, I'm curious, what do you guys think uh, going forward are we going to see as the defensive lineup from the Revolution? Um, just because we've seen so much rotation over these last two games, you know, due to mental errors or guys going in and out of the doghouse. You know, if they don't sign somebody between now and the next game, you know, I don't, I don't want to get into that game and, and start previewing it. But as a, as a back four, Brian, who do you think we'll see starting <laughs> this next game? I, honestly, you know, for better or worse, probably worse, the same defensive, the the same back four we saw yesterday, where it's going to be Dale on the left, Andy Bob and, and Dale LeMay as, as your center backs, and Farrell on the right. I just, I don't think anyone else has, had, I don't think there's anyone behind any of those guys that has made a, a solid, a solid shout for, for taking, for taking somebody's starting spot. Um, Brandon Bai obviously is not one of their best defenders, um, so I can't see him overtaking anyone. Um, I do think that Friedel does have a lot of faith in Dielna, a veteran guy who, who when he does show up, is actually a quality defender. Um, but that's always that seems to have been a big if in the last few weeks. Um, so I think going forward, un, un, until they unless they make some sort of acquisition during the window where they bring in, you know, they bring in another defender, I think that that's I think the back four we saw yet last night and uh, at Red Bull Arena is going to be their back four going forward. And I hate to do this, but I absolutely 100% agree with what Brian said. Um, I don't think there's anyone kind of behind them that they have more faith in. Um, and the other thing, too, is that we have to remember that the Red Bulls are a superior team to the Revolution. I mean, well, that that's just plain and simple. So um, I know it was a bit of a poor showing yesterday. Um, and Minnesota was kind of a makeshift back line. And, and, you know, that isn't the back four that we expect to see going forward. So uh, I think Farrell, De La Mea, and Anibaba, and Diana that's your back four for the time being until someone else new comes in. I, I can't see Somi breaking back into the left back spot. Um, I know we talked about Roe getting a shot back there and I think we'd like to see it, but um, I think they like Roe coming in off the bench as kind of an offensive spark. Um, and I, I, as Brian said, I think by is a work in progress and I think he's got a lot of potential, but I don't think he's very trustworthy defensively right now. Um, so I, I think we're stuck with the current back four as it is. Yeah, I actually think we're going to see one change, and I think that it is going to be Dielna going to the bench. Um, I think it's going to be for Brandon Bay. I also agree with you guys. I don't think he's ready, but we've just seen, especially in recent week, with such consistency that when Brad Friedel thinks somebody played really poorly, um, he put, sends him to the bench. And his post game comments, you know, he really hammered Dielna for that foul. 
um, that led to that free kick. And, of course, he was subbed out of this game in the 84th minute, too. So I, I think Friedel was really unhappy with his play. Um, and, you know, based on what we've seen this year, I think that means he's going to go to the bench. And <laughs> given the lack of options, I think it's probably going to be Brandon Bay playing left back in a couple of weeks. Um, unless, of course, they manage to sign somebody between now and then that can get ready and, and step into that lineup. So um, I'll be interested to see what happens. But uh, those comments from Brad Friedel basically hammering Dielma for that, that set piece, I thought were, were, were somewhat telling as to where his head is going um, for future weeks. Uh, but let's move on from the game. There was some other interesting news this week. Um, well, not really news, but there was a rumor sparked when Jorge Mas, who's part of the um, future Miami MLS team's ownership group, uh, that team, I don't think we know a name of it for it yet, so we'll, we'll just call it Beckham's team uh, going forward. Um, he mentioned in, in a meeting in regards to their potential to get a stadium in Miami uh, that the Revolution were about to build a stadium near the TD Garden, or I think he just said the Garden, so I guess there's some ambiguity there. Um, and you know the the Revolution beat reporters Jonathan Siegel and I think Sean Sweeney all, all you know emailed all the or contacted all the the local mayor's offices and and everyone turned up nothing as far as uh, any conversations there. So it seems like this might have been a whole lot of nothing. And the Revolution did not deny the rumor, but gave a no comment. Which um, you know again, it's one of those rumors that puts the Revolution in a positive light. So maybe maybe why do you deny it if you can get some good press out of it? Um, but. To me, it seems like this is probably a whole lot of nothing based on the the lack of of any corroboration from from anybody. What do you, what do you guys think about uh, this rumor? Yeah, I agree. I think that probably what happened is that the revolution are, you know, they they do seem to be making an effort to always be looking for a site in downtown Boston um, and kind of get a stadium in the city. And I'm sure they've looked at some sites around the. I think his, the correct words Jorge Mas used was the Boston Garden. Um, so I, I think that he probably heard from MLS that the crafts are looking around uh, the TD Garden. Um, not that there's anything set in stone, and I think he just misspoke. Um, I don't think that he knows anything that the general public does not know. Um, I don't think there's any breaking news here. Um, I think the crafts have always kind of been looking for something downtown. The, the problem is there's so limited space downtown that, you, you know, if – it wouldn't be kept a secret. It wouldn't be kept a very good secret. Um, if you know, they're, they're not going to announce it tomorrow without some grumblings overall. Um, I actually reached out to a couple people I know that work in real estate in Boston, asking them if they had heard any rumors or anything like that. Uh, and they all said no. Um, and the other thing too, is I was looking at Sean Sweeney's tweets. And the one thing that I will know is that the surrounding municipalities that he reached out to all said that they had had no conversations with the crafts. So it seemed like I think Cambridge, Somerville, um, th- those towns had no contact at all with the crafts, whereas the um, city of Boston said that there had been no proposals submitted. So I don't know if you want to read into that language that maybe um, the you know Mayor Walsh has has been talking to the crafts about a stadium. Um, maybe that's probably like the optimistic shred of truth here. Um, but um, overall, this looks like a bunch of nothing. Um, it was fun to dream, but um, I. I don't think anything's going to come out of these rumors. What do you think, Brian? Anything to get excited over or, or is this nothing? For me, I'm just so jaded at all the rumors over the years that I won't believe anything until I see them breaking ground. So that's that's my attitude. It's it's my attitude going forward. It's going to stay my attitude until, until I actually see some construction. And it's not easy to build in Boston. It's not like there's exactly. a lot of land. Like, I, I mean, it's it's... <laughs> It's something that the crowd, it's not going to happen overnight. And it's been going on forever and forever, but it just seems like they want to do it right. 
they want to have a stadium that is in the perfect spot. And I don't know if that perfect spot exists. So, I mean, this is going to be, as you said, Brian, uh, until there's actual an announcement and construction of a stadium, um, I, I don't think it's going to happen. I mean, I just I don't know where they're going to put it. So, I mean, around the TD Garden would be a pretty ideal spot, but I don't see how there's any land anywhere near there that would uh, fit the bill. So, so it, it, it's a great in theory. The only thing that I could see is there's some land over by, I think it's like the Bunker Hill Community College. There are some fields over there, and then right next to it, there's a bunch of like really crappy like industrial buildings. And so I guess in theory, that would be a decent spot for it. It's right off of 93. But I mean, then you're talking about land that's has multiple owners. So the craft would then have to go negotiate that land with, you know, five or six different owners to build a stadium. Um, and then I think someone, there's another site um, that's down on the Mass Pike um, that I think is just like, it looks like kind of like a rail station or something like that, that people have kind of speculated at. But I mean, there, there's really not a lot of sites that would fit a soccer stadium. So I think we're on the same page that there's not too much here to be excited about. Uh, so let's move on to our Twitter questions. Greg, do you want to take us through those? Yeah, sure. Um, let's go here. We actually got a lot of Twitter questions today, so we'll, we'll try to skim through these as quickly as possible. Um, so Barbara asked us a question. With the obvious weakness in the defense, should Friedel consider a different formation? The right and left backs have not been successful at getting forward to cross and also getting back to defend. Uh, and then she she notes that they actually look good playing a 4-4-1 with a man down, uh, which is true. When they were down, down a man, their offense was clicking, and it seems like that uh, 11th guy comes back on the field and they kind of struggle. So um, I, I kind of want to feel this one first just because we talked about a 5-3-2 or a 5-4-1 a few weeks ago or a few months ago, I guess it was, and they, they kind of tried it against Columbus, and they tried it for a few weeks, and it really didn't work. Um, so I guess that's kind of my initial thought that they might be able to go back to a five-man back line. I don't know who they'd take off and – but that didn't seem to really help out the offense. So what, what do you guys think? Do you have any ideas on uh, maybe mixing up the formation? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it, in, in talking about the 5-3-2, uh, the I mean, I just think that uh, I think we kind of saw that kind of variation on the, on the defense. Um, and it really didn't kind of really do what it was intended to do. Um, obviously, that, that also included guys like Brandon Bay, Chris Tierney were both in it. And obviously, Chris, uh, Chris Tierney's out for the season. So you kind of lose a lot by you lose that that kind of option when you're when you're using a five three two but um but yeah it's funny because like you like you had mentioned Greg to to see them play the four four one against the galaxy and they actually defended better than they did with uh with eleven guys was kind of it's kind of amazing so um um I think at this juncture it, I, I I don't see how any kind of defensive restructuring would would uh would alter their fortunes in the back because I just think that at the end of the day, you just need more quality, and that's that's something that they're that the last two games have shown that they're they're kind of lacking at the moment. Yeah, I, I think this gets to some interesting points. This question because I think the the setup that Brad Friedel is using, not necessarily the formation so much as the the tactics of the high press, really expose the weaknesses in the and the defense. Um, certainly, with the high press, individual errors that we've seen so much in the recent week become more apparent. Uh, when you know Andy Baba is playing a high line and he mishits a header and it sends a guy going forward, you know that's a, also a symptom of, of Brad Friedel's tactics. If you had been playing a different formation, maybe that doesn't lead to or, or different tactics, maybe that doesn't lead to that situation. Um, but it leads to a lot of isolation the way they're playing right now, and I think they lack, you know, in a lot of areas, defenders that are good at one-on-one defenders, and that's you know come back to bite them, um, especially in we- recent weeks. I don't think we're going to see a formation change. Um, 
I would be interested to see how this team could look in a traditional 4-4-2. Uh, you know, if you had Aguadelo and, and Bunbury up top, I think Bunbury is a, a streaky goal scorer and we're, right now is in a, a kind of a slump where he's not scoring. Um, and they could maybe use somebody else up top. Um, you know, if you had you know, more traditional roles from your from your fullbacks and, and from your outside backs, I mean, from your outside wingers as well, um, it would be interesting to see what would happen there. The, the other problem is they're lacking two wingers for the most part in, in midfield. Uh, but, you know, just getting another striker up top right now is something that I think this offense needs. Uh, but if you're going to keep playing this high press, uh, the Revolution need all the help they can get in the back. And, uh, you know, trying to trying to alternate, tw- switch up things too much, I'm not sure is going to, to solve anything. Um, you know, and I don't think that Brad Friel is going to go away from the high press. So I think we're, we're stuck with what we have right now. And I'm going to stick with the tactic questions first, and then I'll get to the other kind of more general broad questions. But um, Mike Kennedy asks us uh, a question actually on Kellen Rowe, so we'll kind of pick up the conversation we had earlier. But uh, he's interested in our thoughts on Kellen Rowe centrally versus him playing the uh, on the wing. Um, and then kind of a comparison of uh, where he's been a little bit more successful this season. Um, and then he's also curious what's missing in the final third. Yeah, when it comes to Kellen Rowe, <laughs> I'm not sure the success has been there wherever he's played this year, unfortunately. Um, as we talked about earlier, I think all of us thought you know he'd be better off centrally, uh, but he's had a couple of games this year where he's gotten the opportunity to play central, and it, the performance just hasn't been there. Uh, if you trust who scores positioning, um, they have him at attacking mid in one game, and they gave him a 6.74. Um, they had him twice at central midfield and his combined rating there was a 6.29 and two games at left midfield they have him at a 6.86 and as the defensive midfield they have a 6.82 so it doesn't seem like there's much variation based on on where he's playing and again those are statistical based rankings so they don't see everything Um, but I'm kind of at a loss and we talked about this earlier with with what to do with with Kellen Rowe because whether he's in the center or on the right it doesn't seem to be working I think it's you know for whatever reason, he doesn't fit into the high press. Um, he's a guy that's great with the ball in possession. He's great at slowing down the game and, and, and making smart passes, and, and maybe that's just not a fit uh, for what Brad Friedel's doing. Um, but it's disappointing because we've seen it in the past for the U.S. national team at times when, in his minutes there, and we've seen it for the Revs that he can be very good you know, as a right midfielder or as a central midfielder. And um, you know, we talked about it before. All of us going into the season thought that he might be the guy that benefits from you know Lee Wynn leaving uh to get more time centrally but it just it just hasn't worked out and i'm I'm not sure that there's an answer at this point for moving him to any position that's going to work yeah it just seems like he's been he, he just hasn't fit the the high press and i think that you know one of the things that i that you had mentioned sean was the fact that he's more of a guy that isn't isn't so much uh isn't so strong on the press as he is on like you know building you know you know building traditionally you know building from the back and like you're know, playing those smart little balls and um and just ripping those shots from distance which he still tends to do which is kind of you know kind of to me at least kind of speaks to the fact that he's he really hasn't you know tailored his game to the high press i think he still plays i think he still plays like he's in heaps of system where where heaps of system is obviously predicated upon those short passes is predicated upon um uh, you know uh, you know developing uh more methodically uh becoming having the offense develop more methodically and and uh and create create opportunities on those short quick passes um and 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 i don't think from what i can tell i don't think Callan rowe has kind of shown uh you know those kind of adjustments to the high press the the, the adjustments he needs to make to the high press neither the central central role or as the uh, or out on the out on the right so um I, I think it's become apparent to everyone, including Friedel, that he's he's not he's not a first choice starter. Um, 
you know, in the system. And, uh, you know, the only way he gets it is if there's, you know, a short week and guys need rest or if there's an injury. So um, I, I, I got to say that I think Cal and Rose days are probably numbered um, given that. Yeah. And, and I'm just to tack on, uh, I, I, I was thinking about this question. I, I would not be surprised to see Kellen Rowe traded um, in this transfer window for maybe a defender. Um, it's kind of interesting that I think Matt Doyle had a comment, uh, had a had a column uh, before the season where he ranked the top 50 players by trade value, and Kellen Rowe I think was the highest Revolution player in terms of trade value. I think he was ranked like 30th or 32nd or something like that, um, based on his you know contract and and his salary figure and uh, what he contributed to the team. And you know coming into the season, uh, I think people thought he was going to be the replacement for Lee Wynn um, before Diego Fagundes was moved to the 10 spot. So um, it's kind of interesting to see how far he's fallen. Um, in terms of the question, I think Rowe plays better centrally, but as you said, Brian, he, he really doesn't fit anywhere in this high-press system. Um, I think his role of um, kind of super sub off the bench is probably his best role, uh, but it's a lot of wasted talent, in my opinion. I still think he's got some uh, uh, talent, and I think he'd be better suited on a, in a different system on a different team. So um, I wouldn't be shocked to see him uh, moving soon. So um, it, it's it's a shame, but... It is what it is. So um, any thoughts on what's missing on the final third? It, it's kind of an interesting question, too, since uh, I think Teal Bunbury has kind of slowed down since uh, I think he had like a six-goal, six-game goal streak. Um, Panini has kind of slowed down. Um, any idea what's missing? You think it's just tired legs, or, or you think that maybe someone like Boyan needs to come in, or any thoughts on that, guys? No, I just I think it's a little bit of both. I think tired legs from the short week certainly didn't help things. Um you know, as we talked about before, before Pania um, didn't have the tire leg excuse because he was suspended for Minnesota and he just looked awful. Um, but also, you know, like I talked about earlier, Bunbury is a guy that's streaky. He's never scored 10 goals in a season before this year. So he's already, you know, bested his career mark. Um, and, you know, I don't see him as a guy that's going to go and, you know, score another 10 for this team. Um, yes, he's been having a good year, but you see plays like that one, uh, against the Red Bulls, where he has a, a great chance and a, and a true, truly clinical finisher puts that one away rather than hits it right at the goalkeeper. Um, so I, I think they need some more options up top. When when Bunbury is not working out, they don't really have you know. Yes, they can move Aguadello up there, but they don't really have many great forward options on the bench. Namath hasn't worked out. Uh, I don't think Brian Wright or, or, or Femi are the answers. Um, but they're they're lacking another option as a as a goal scorer, and I think they also could use another playmaker in midfield. Um, since they've lost Lee Wynn, you know, you'd hope that Conor Rowe would step up and be that guy, and he hasn't been there. So, you know, if you want to have a guy that changes the pace and and you know, kind of changes the way this team's going when the offense isn't working out, I don't think they really have that player. Yeah, I was going to say that. Uh, I was going to say that they definitely need a playmaker, and I'm not even saying you need like a uh, a replica of, of Lee Wynn. You just need a guy who comes off the bench as your definitive super sub. And I know that there have been, you know, one or two games where Rowe has has kind of acted like that, has kind of performed in that way. But for the most part, you're not really getting a ton of from Callan Rowe off the bench. They really don't have that kind of high energy, you know, high, high quality player that can really, you know, change the dynamic of a game. Um, and I just I think that's I think that's what they've lacked the most as of as of late when things are not going well. When things are not going well for the offense on a given night, there's really nobody on the bench that can ch- kind of, you know, change that or make a significant or, or you know can, can profoundly impact the fortunes of the of the offense going forward um, once they enter the game. So I think that they that they certainly lack that um, the most. And it's funny you say that because that leads into uh, another question by Mike Kennedy. Um, he asks us if there's any rhyme or reason to Friedel's substitution patterns. Um, they're either too late or ineffective. 
Uh, maybe it's just lately, but it seems like the Revs lack any kind of spark off the bench this season. So it kind of fits in perfectly with your comment there, Brian. Um, I, I think that Friedel really manages the game kind of game by game and kind of situationally. Um, I'm not sure if there is rhyme or reason in terms of who comes in and who comes off. I know when Agadello um, was kind of re coming back from his hamstring injury, you could kind of predict he was going to come on with 25 to 30 minutes. But um, other than that, we've seen guys out there 80 minutes a game and then three substitutions in the last 10 minutes. Um, we've seen two guys come off at halftime. Um, I don't, I, I, as the season goes on, I think there are some games he has a perfect idea of uh, managing minutes, but I, I also think that it's really game by game and situationally where um, sometimes he thinks the game needs Cullen Rowe. Sometimes it needs Scott Caldwell. Um, what do you guys think? I don't really understand what he's been doing lately, to be perfectly honest. In going, going back just three games, the L.A. game, um, and we talked about this one already, but they, they were down a man for all of that time when they waited till the 85th minute to bring on a sub when they you know could have used fresh legs, um, clearly as they were running through that whole game. And then, of course, this past week against Minnesota, they waited till the, the 66th minute when things clearly weren't working out that well for them to, to make the first sub. And again, you know, guys coming off short rest off that the big game, you know, fresh legs could have been useful there. Um, I don't know why they waited that long. And then when they did make a sub in that game, it was, you know, like for like with, with Namath coming on for, for Bunbury. Um, so not particularly going offensive to try to come back and, and, and get the, at least a draw out of that one. Um, and then, you know, again, this week, they waited till the 69th minute to make a, a, a on Saturday, they waited till the 69th minute to make a sub. Um, and it was Bunbury for Kellen Rowe. So not really an, an offensive sub when you're looking to, to make a move to, to come back. Um, and then waited again till the 78th minute and the 84th minute to make their, their next two subs. So, you know, at times this season, I think Friedel's used the substitution as well. This past week, I'm, I'm not really sure what's going through his head with those subs. Yeah, I would just attribute the fact that the subs have been kind of weird this last two games just for the fact that, you know, they they were down two guys. They weren't they didn't have Caicedo in being in that first game. So I think obviously that limited his options. And I think in the second game you might have you might have attributed some of it to the fact that, you know, they had just played on Wednesday. Um so I guess those those are the only two things I can think of that immediately come to mind. Um also go back to the idea that he didn't even use Scott Caldwell, their best passer in a game in which that the team was overall passing at 54%. So that more than anything else kind of like surprises me the most that you have a guy who can, who maybe he doesn't, obviously maybe you don't bring him on at halftime, but maybe you bring him on in the 70th minute, 75th minute to kind of maybe uh, alleviate some of those issues. And, and, you know, he sits on the bench and doesn't even see the field. So um, I think these last two games were kind of like a, uh, kind of like an outlier, I guess you could say. Um, and you know, who knows, maybe, um, you know, a, a, a buy will the next week's buy will do them well. Everyone's gets a little bit more healthy, a little more rested, and um, you know the substitutions won't be as won't be as uh, head scratching. Brian, I actually wanted to get your take on, on on something related to Caldwell because we didn't have you on last week, um, and this was something that I talked about with Greg a bit. Is that um, you know last year when when Heaps was in charge, they had a guy in, in Kobayashi who they'd bring on late in games to try to close them out. Uh, and it seems like Scott Caldwell, if he's not going to be starting, could be that same guy for you when you're winning. And I was shocked that we didn't see Caldwell come onto that that Galaxy game as a guy that can help maintain possession. Um, is it surprising to you that you know it doesn't seem like Friedel seems sees Caldwell as a guy to to bring on? Um, you know, certainly in games like that when they're when they're winning to to kind of close it out. It, it you know it's a good question. I, I I think for me, I think 
Friedel views Caldwell a little differently than than Jay Heaps. I think Heaps kind of looked like Caldwell as like the kind of like you had said, a guy that helps close out a team because he's so he's so positionally sound, he's so fundamentally sound on his on the passing, and he really does a lot to uh, to make sure everybody's on the same page. Um, but I think I think Friedel looks at more looks at Caldwell as more of a more of an offensive threat than I think Heaps does, um, and I think it's just a different different perspective. I think I think when you do have the pairing of Caicedo and Caldwell. I think Caldwell is more of an attacking presence than Caicedo, um, even though Caicedo has obviously has ambition to go forward if he, you know, in certain situations. But I think the the ask of Caicedo when both Caldwell and and he are paired is that Caldwell will be the more prominent will be more prominent in the attack than Caicedo, um, unless the occasion calls for it. So I think it's more of a byproduct of the fact that Friedel looks at. Caldwell is more of an attacking player, more of the kind of Caldwell that we saw in college, um, and I think it's just you know I think that's 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 how Friedel views him, and I, you know I don't I don't think it would hurt the Revs, I don't think it would hurt their fortunes if you did bring on Caldwell as a guy that kind of quote unquote closes out a game um, when they're up, um, but I don't think Friedel sees him in, as that kind of player. As as much at least as much as Heap said, that's for sure. So while we're moving on, while we're while we're talking about uh, questioning Brad Friedel's decisions, <laughs> um, Zach Grimes asked this question: uh, Is Friedel's way of not wait? Sorry, let me start again. Is Friedel's way of not admitting player mistakes working for team morale or lowering it? Um, and I guess that kind of refers to um, Brad Friedel kind of being blunt uh, regarding um, you know mental errors and stuff like that, um, which is certainly a different approach compared to Jay Heaps who kind of always said he wanted to go back and look at the tape and, and it was kind of silent on uh, criticizing players or, or not criticizing players. Um, do you guys think that that might be having an effect on uh, team morale and, and might be a negative? Or do you guys think this uh, kind of blunt reality is uh, a positive thing and getting the team in line? Well, I'm wondering if that question was was misworded by, by saying not admitting player mistakes because it seems like he has been admitting player mistakes. Yeah, um, I did a double take. I think he, yeah. I think there's an extra word in there. So. Yeah, because certainly this last game being the prime example where I mentioned he called out Dielma. Um, you know, I don't know what effect that's having on on the team. Um, you know, the the point that I made last week a bit, and I I still agree with, is that you know it seems like he's a lot of times writing off individual mistakes. Um, and instead of like pointing to something that maybe he could improve in the team, um, it's easy to say the team played well, but we had all these individual mistakes, and that kind of exempts the coach uh, a bit from some of the blame. Um, but there's such a habit of individual mistakes now that that does fall on the coaching staff, and they need to figure out what to do about it. Because when you have three games like this where you know individual mistakes keep costing you, uh, that's a pattern. And the coach needs to do something about that. So I I, I don't know. I, I I'm not sure it's hurting the team morale, but it, you know to to keep placing the blame on individual mistakes and not accept some of the blame for himself, which I don't really think he he has because he keeps saying the team's playing well and the individual mistakes are what, what's costing them. Uh, you know, it's 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 interesting. I don't, I really don't know what what to make of it because it is very different from from Jay Heap certainly. Yeah, I would say we're going to find out a lot more about that as the, as the summertime progresses and as we get to, get closer to the playoffs, uh, to the postseason hunt because of the fact that now you have a guy like Dianna who was who was their captain, you know, coming out of coming out of the preseason was their captain up until you know two or three weeks ago, and now he's being called out. Not only does he get the armband taken away from him, but he also gets called out by the head coach in the uh, in the post game comments. So I think we're going to find out a lot about whether or not. Those kinds of comments kill team morale because if you have, you know, your your you know your undisputed leader getting a lot of the heat, it'll be interesting to see how the rest of how not only he reacts, 
but how that reaction kind of the ripple effect of how that reaction plays in the locker room because um you know obviously like we saw last year heaps is very much like you know i'll look at the tape um he probably any he, he kind of reserves judgment at least publicly um when it comes to individual performances um but i think you know we're going to find a lot more when as as the season gets moves along now that we're coming to the point where we're seeing a lot of individual mistakes and we're seeing the revs being you know you know being kind of put through the gauntlet with 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 the way that they're the, the last half of the season is going given their schedule um, i think we're going to find out a lot more about whether or not those kinds of public criticisms affect how it affects team morale well, you're right. This is certainly a gut check time because they've lost three games in a row and they hadn't, you know, this is the first real adversity they faced. They hadn't lost more than a game in a row all season. So it's going to be telling for sure. I, I was going to say, too, I bet this works a lot better when you're not on a losing streak. I think when it's a losing streak, it's almost like it's piling on. Whereas if you're having mixed results or if you're on a winning streak, you know, it might motivate you as you're the weak link. You know what I mean? So, I mean, it, it probably different players probably react differently. And I'm sure we can, you know, if Claude Dielna responds positively, Great. If not, you know, that, that might be a good way to tell, you know, if Claude Dillon has a, uh, you know, comes out against Orlando in a couple of weeks and has a great game, you know, maybe that'll tell us something a little bit different. But um, I don't know. The, the other thing I want to point out, too, is that a lot of these players Brad Friel inherited. And so I'm kind of curious to see because I don't think he's called out anyone that he has brought in. I think the players he's called out are, you know, Claude Dielna. Um, I think he called out Scott Caldwell once, you know, Caldwell uh, against Minnesota. I don't think he mentioned him by name, but, um, you know, I, I don't think he's really had a moment where he's placed blame on Pania or even Somi. I don't think he's really publicly called out. Um, so it'll it'll be interesting to see kind of who remains with the team after. I, I don't know if that's looking too far ahead or um, if we can kind of read between the lines that there's something there. But I, I don't think he's really called out anyone that he has brought in himself. So I, I just want to throw that kind of tidbit no, out there. That's actually a really interesting point. I hadn't really thought about that because, I mean, certainly you can make your own judgments based on who he's benched. And, and you know, I think it's safe to say Somi has been in the doghouse at times, a Hebo at times. Um, but you're right when you've actually heard him call out guys either by name or, you know, just pointing to particular mistakes. I, I don't actually recall him. <laughs> pointing to any of the guys that he was that he brought in so that's a an interesting point i feel like he might have been critical of matt turner kind of as a you know maybe, maybe he kind of did a yeah matt could have done better on that play I, i'm going off the top of my head so i, I so and and he's inherited matt turner but i'd say matt turner is one of friedel's player he, he elevated him to the starting lineup but uh, nothing comes off the top of my head as someone that he's brought in so i don't know that, that might be worth noting um so uh, another question here we got from Tyler, and this is regarding the summer slump, which we, uh, Sean, we kind of talked about last week. Uh, we we kind of sensed it coming, and, and now it's in full swing. Um, is the annual summer slump something larger than the revolution selection of talent at a given time, or has it bled into the ethos of the building? Uh, so is it kind of more mental at this point, which is a kind of a good question because you kind of think of the, you know, um, curses over time, Red Sox, Cubs, you know, kind of those long droughts that maybe that it's kind of an expectation after a while that the revolution are going to slump. Um, what do you guys think? I don't know. I think for, I think it's hard to say like this year because it's, it's, I, there are a lot of the same players that are obviously returning from past years, but obviously there's a new coach, but I also think with this year in particular, it's different because they had such a favorable first half of the schedule. I mean, Really, I mean, once they hit this part of the schedule, I mean, anyone who could just look at the schedule can say this might be a really tough time for the team right now because, you know, they, they you know, obviously take away the Galaxy game. But, you know, these the, as the summer months progress, you have a midweek game at Minnesota. You have another game fought. The, the immediate game right after that is at New York. 
Um, so I think that for the most part, I think it's more a byproduct this year of the schedule than anything else, because um, this year it's just it's obviously a different coach, but also just a murderous schedule uh, going to the second half. And I think it's uh, I think it's finally caught up with them. And I think it's also the fact that to an extent, I think they kind of overperformed during the first half. I think a lot of people were surprised, myself included, that they actually played as well as they did during the first you know, 15, 16 games. Um, so I think, you know, be, combine that with the schedule, I think the overperforming and the fact that the schedule gets really difficult, we're kind of like in the teeth of the schedule right now, and it's only going to get worse. Um, I think that this year, at least plays more into more into their current struggles than anything else. Yeah. I, I'm not going to dabble on too long cause I agree with everything Brian just said. And it's just interesting that they had that game against the galaxy, um, which they're up two one late and you know, down a man and had an opportunity to really change the narrative about the team this year. Uh, and they blew that. And then the reaction on Wednesday against the Minnesota team, that's not that good. Um, you know, wasn't, wasn't very positive. So, uh, this could have been a lot different, but it, it, it's, it's something that, and I think it certainly was a, a, a habit under Jay heaps and, and, you know, more to it then, but, uh, it, it is interesting that once again, they've fallen into that summer slump, um, but they were so close from it, being, from it being so different just a week ago. Yeah, and I agree with everything you guys said. I, I think a lot of the summer slump, if anything, it might come from the fan base. I, I'd, I'd say that there's a lot of negativity around the Revs just because there is this kind of expectation that they're going to lose, um, which is totally justified, I'd say. Uh, you know, It seems to be an annual occurrence where they go on a losing streak and at the end of the year, um, that's always the stretch that you kind of look back and you, you, <laughs> it costs you a playoff spot. So, um, but I, I think if there's anything, it, it maybe it's kind of like that. I know that there have been players in the past from different sports that talk about, you know, you can kind of feel the negativity in the stadium. Um, and it kind of adds that extra layer of pressure. But uh, as Brian said, I, I, I want, I'm willing to hold off judgment just because it's Brad Friedel's team. It's kind of a new summer. Um, and they've lost three in a row, you know, that, that certainly not great, but, also coming into the season, as Brian said, we didn't really have a lot of expectations. So, um, you know, I, I think the Revs are, they're currently in sixth place. Um, I think if you had told me earlier this season, they'd be in sixth place midway through the year. I think I'd be pretty happy with that overall. So, um, yeah, I, I don't think it really contributes overall, but who's to say? Um, we got one more question. Actually, we got a couple more questions, but Corey asked about the crafts. Um, since it's the summer transfer window, we got to talk summer transfer here. Um, will the crafts ever provide the necessary resources to the front office so the revs can compete for MLS, the MLS cup and supporter supporter shields. And, uh, assuming that they do, do you have any confidence in the front office to capitalize on it? Look, I think it's a fair assessment to say that spending at the level the revs do on salaries compared to their peers puts them out at a severe disadvantage to competing for MLS cup and supporter shield. And I think it's, you know, realistically and until they, up what they're going to spend on salaries they're not going to compete for those two things um and you know i i i honestly think that this team is looking for the right stadium situation um i have no idea how long that's going to take uh and i have no idea how particular they're being and maybe they're being unrealistically particular and that's why it's taking so long um but i think once that happens they're going to invest more into this team because then it makes more sense as an investment because right now, you know, if you put a lot of money into this team and build the fan base in Foxborough only and move to, to Boston a few years from now, uh, you could kind of look at that as wasted money. Um, so uh, to me, I think that that's what it's going to take for, for the ownership group to put a bit more money into this team and be more competitive with their peers. Um, it's finally getting that same in Boston and then making the investment then to, to actually build the brand more than they have. Um, but that's, that's my thought. Uh, and I do agree that, 
more spending needs to take place if they're actually going to legitimately compete for an MLS Cup and supporter shield because they're having the kind of salary difference that they have between you know some of the best teams in the league isn't in the long run going to lead to a lot of success. I mean, for me, it all just goes back to the Jermaine Jones signing. I mean, I think, I think the Jermaine Jones signing was the perfect, the perfect storm for the Crafts and for their front office because it was a no doubt signing. Like you just, I mean, when you have the opportunity to sign a guy like that coming off that World Cup. Um, it, it just seemed like a no-brainer. And it just seems like, you know, at the time we thought, okay, this is the signing that kind of turns the tide when it comes to the, the crafts being aggressive uh, at the at the transfer window. And as we've seen the last, you know, four years, that hasn't been the case. So um, I, there's nothing besides that signing that leads me to believe that they're going to be more aggressive, that they're going to get, you know, spend uh, a multi, uh, spend, uh, you know, make a multi-million dollar deal for uh for a player that will actually improve the team's uh, fortunes on the field because um it's quite frankly i just don't think that they have the resources to find that kind of player um and not only find that kind of player but convince that kind of player to come to the revs because um like sean touched upon like you you, you can't you want to bring in a guy who wants to play here and when you are playing bringing in a guy who your telling is going to have to play his home games on artificial turf and in a stadium that's you 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 know usually only a third full, I mean that's kind of a problem. It's kind of a hard a hard uh, selling point. Um, so I think that until they get serious, um, until you see, um, you know maybe possibly a stadium, I I just don't see the the crafts you know putting in the same kind of money, Jermaine Jones money uh, if you want to call it into uh, into another summer signing anytime soon. Yeah, and and I'm gonna kind of change the question a little bit because i'm going to kind of focus more on the front office and you know we talk about previous transfer windows um the one thing that kind of stands out to me was the christian nimeth uh, signing last year which almost seemed to be kind of out of desperation and you know they kind of made it and you know a lot of people were like where does nimeth fit and he, he didn't really fit anywhere um and so i, I certainly have more questions about um you know how, will the front office make the correct signings when they get that checkbook um, I do think the Crafts will open the checkbook from time to time. I don't know if they'd ever get into the top ten in the league in salaries, um, which, you know, if you if you were to reword the question, will the Crafts ever, you know, spend, you know, get get in the t- among the league leaders in salary and and bring in superstars? I I, I I'm leaning no, kind of kind of like what you said, Brian. Like, but um, you know, I, I think it's really more: do I have a lot of trust in the front office to um, spend money where they need it to avoid bringing in guys like Somi and Dielna and Namath? who are taking up huge chunks of the budget and um, really are not, they're, they're not providing a lot of return on that investment. So um, I, I'm willing to give Brad Friedel the benefit of the doubt. And I kind of want to see what he does um, at the end of the season and kind of give him a full season, bring in players. Um, I know that um, I, I forget who said it, but uh, I guess they've, they've mentioned that Brad Friedel's network to players in Europe has certainly provided benefits and, um, you know, bring in players like Caicedo and Pania certainly have worked out for him. So um, I, I, I would say that on a scale of one to 10, my trust in the front office is about a six right now. And the crafts is about a three. I don't know if that's fair. If you guys want to have anything to add on to that, but that's kind of where I'm standing with those two questions. No, I think, I think that's, that's fair. Um, you know, we talk about transfers. I thought they did a pretty decent job in the off season. You know, they certainly hit with Pena. They certainly hit with Caicedo. Um, you know, so they didn't hit on Sahibo, I think is, is, is still up in the air, but you know, even, you know, even two out of five, isn't, I mean, two out of four, I should say, isn't isn't bad for for big signings or for medium sized signings in those cases, I should say. Um, in the past, I think the the hit has been a the hit percentage has been a lot worse 
Mm-hmm. So overall, I think the the front office hasn't done a great job. You know, Mike Burns in particular of of bringing in the guys that this, this team needs to succeed. Um, you mentioned Namath. That was you know one that now I think has left the team in a tough position because they got a, a million dollars a year invested in this guy that. Um, and of course, they, they had to trade to get him too, get it with some some allocation money to to get that spot and, and pick him up. Um, but now I don't. I think it's pretty much immovable because he's not playing well enough for another team to take him. And I'm not sure, you know, the length of his contract. But you know, he's taken up a lot of cap space, and he's not doing very much. So that transfer really turned out to be a, a big mistake, and was one that you know we questioned a bit at the time because you knew Heaps was probably on the way out, and now you're you know putting a lot of money into this guy that's. Uh, gonna be here for at least another season, and I have no idea, you know, what his what his contract is at this point. Whether he'll be here again next year, but um, yeah, I think I think it's it's fair to to say that you know to expect the Crafts to jump into the top ten and spending anytime soon is is unrealistic, um, and also that you know the front office has I think done a bit better job this this year with Friedel in charge um, of, of finding guys, but um, historically hasn't done well enough. And I and I will say one other thing too because. Um... I don't know if you guys saw, but any Revs UK asked us a question on who 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 who, who we expect, you know, who, who the, what do the Revs need for uh, this summer transfer window? And he said left back, a center back, and they said he wanted a forward and a right winger. Um, and I kind of replied back and I said, you know, I agree al- along the defensive line. You can, you can get someone on that back line to fill in and provide you some depth. But, you know, if they're going to go out and sign an attacking player, that's probably going to be someone who's going to be a DP. And you need to nail that signing because I think another – you know, Christian Nemeth, again, Nemeth is a fine player, but I, I don't think he's worth the salary, as you mentioned, Sean. Um, and I, I don't think he's a DP level type player. Um, I think if they went out and they got another DP level player, I mean, that would kind of cripple them because they're not going to spend $15 million a year in salary or $10 million a year in salary. So um, I think their next DP signing has to be a home run. So I think I'd really, really kind of kind of skeptical about it. But, um, you know, I, I think they really need to nail it. So I'm going to reserve judgment until... Uh, we see a new DP come in. Yeah, I'll start off by saying, and I'm surprised to nobody, they absolutely 100% need to bring a left back in in this window. Um, there's no avoiding that at all. Uh, I do think they need more help at center back. I don't think, um, I think Dielma, if you're going to push him back in a center back, you know, maybe maybe that fixes things a little bit. But overall, I think the, the play there hasn't been good enough. Um, as much as I like Andy Baba's passion and, and what he brings to the game, um, I don't think he's your starting center back for, you know, the entire season plus playoffs. I think there's a reason he's you know, been sort of a, a journeyman throughout this league. And um, the reason that 29 is his salary is, you know, as low as it is. Um, and that's that, you know, he, for an entire season, he's not really your guy to, to, to be there. Um, he's more of a you know great rotation guy or, or, or number three center back. Um, so those are two spots they need help in. And I, and I do think like, like Greg said that, um, if they're going to go out and get a striker, it's you know time that they spent up big for a, a good designated player up there, and, and that would be something that could help out the team a lot. Um, but the most glaringly obvious need is obviously left back, and if they go out of this transfer window without getting a left back, um, that's a horrible failure. Yeah, I would just, uh, just basically agree with everything you say, but I mean, anywhere on the defense, they, they really need help at really anywhere on the defense. And you can pick center back, left back, right back. They could certainly use upgrades at, at either position. Um, and so I would just say anywhere on the back line, and they could certainly use another attacking piece, um, whether or not that's uh, that's an attacking playmaker. Even if you get a super sub off the bench, even if you get a guy, maybe it's a lower key signing, where you do get a guy that can kind of either help you off the bench or kind of switch things up a little bit if you don't want to play for Goonies every, uh, every game. Um, I think if you get those two kinds of players, it's a... Uh, it's a certainly a good start, and I think the the expectation. We also have to think about expectations. I mean, are we you know are, are we thinking about having this 
bring in players that will make this team reach the postseason, or are we talking about players that will make this team better next year? And I think kind of an eye has to be looked. I think you have to look at both kind of scenarios, um, especially because of the fact that they have kind of outperformed during the first half of the season. So um, obviously the most important thing is that you have players that you can kind of, that at least from Friedel's perspective, you can kind of build around um, so that next year you don't have to really worry about um, that. You don't really have to worry about the same issues that we've been talking about all, all year this year and that those upgrades have already been made. So, um, you know, those would be my two my my two picks, I would say, anywhere along the back line and uh, and an attacking player up top, uh, you know, perhaps maybe a, uh, a mini Lee win, if you will. All right. And we'll we'll move on to uh, last uh, listener question we got here. And uh, th- this one will probably be a little bit short. I think we'll have the same answer across the board. But I don't know if you guys heard the story last night about Matt Turner postgame. Um, apparently, he, being from New Jersey, his mother and some friends were at the game and I guess they were sitting somewhat near the supporter section. Um, and so I guess at the end of the game, he kind of went over and was talking to them. And I guess the supporter section, uh, was kind of heckling him, uh, and giving him some taunts. Um, so anyway, Barbara just kind of wanted to get our thoughts, um, about, uh, you know, who was wrong. Should Matt Turner have known better? I guess, uh, you know, was the supporter group wrong or are they both kind of a little bit at fault? And they, she's curious, uh, if we, how we think the fort would have treated an opposing goalkeeper if they had kind of done the same thing. Um, I, I don't think Matt Turner did anything wrong. Uh, I think it's kind of a crappy thing to do, but you know, every fan base has those fans. And I mean, I don't think it would, anything would happen here, but you know, I'm, as I say, there's, there are idiots in every fan base. And so I wouldn't be shocked if something like that happened here. I think it's just kind of a un- universally across the board. There are some pretty crappy people in the world. So look, I mean, as a Red Bulls fan, you won the game. <laughs> the game's over. Uh, a goalkeeper is visiting from the opposing team is, is going to see his mom. I wasn't there. I didn't see what happened. Um, but yeah, it seems kind of crappy to me to, to do that. Um, at the same time, it's sports. Doesn't surprise me. Uh, wouldn't surprise me if it happened in the fort. Um, you know, you don't like your rival team. <laughs> Revs and Red Bulls are, are rivals. You don't like players in your rival team. So for to somebody to go actually go into the supporters section, uh, is not the smartest idea. And while I, you know, disagree with with treating any player like that, particularly after a game's over that way, uh, it doesn't surprise me. And I expect it to continue to happen and happen at other stadiums. And I think it, you know, there's a good chance it would happen at Gillette too. Yeah, I would just, uh, I would just say briefly that it, every fan base has those idiots that just don't, they really don't understand the uh, what, what's taking place in that their uh, their uh, their passion for their team kind of over oversteps their, uh, I guess their uh, their um, common you know, sense. The common sense. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. So I think uh, I don't think it's exclusive to the Red Bull fans. I'm sure every fan, no matter where you go, no, any fan base, no matter where you go, what sport it is, they all have those kinds of guys that really don't don't give a crap about formalities or or uh, or uh, you know general courtesy. I guess you could say. So um, yeah, it doesn't surprise me. And it's crappy too because you, you kind of want to see players be more accessible to the fans. And so, I mean, they probably didn't know he was going to talk to his mom or anything like that. But I don't know there's a certain level of decency you think that those fans would kind of understand. But yeah, they won the game too, two nothing. It's not like they should be upset over a loss or, you know, dropping three points or anything like that. It was, I don't know, it's out of line. But, uh, but before we go, uh, one more question from Greg Johnstone at, you can follow him at, at gjohnstone12. Um, he wants your thoughts on Andrew Farrell getting the captain's armband. Uh, gr- great question from Greg, whoever you are out there. <laughs> really great guy. Really smart, bright guy. Yeah. Uh, no, I was v- 
very surprised by uh, Farrell getting the captain's armband. Um, again, another sign that Diona is a bit in the, the doghouse here. Um, but to me, you would have thought it would go back to, to De La Maya, who's had it sometimes in the past. Um, so I, I, I don't know what that means. I, I think Farrell's actually been, you know, of, of what's been a very crappy back line. Um, Farrell has been one of the more consistent performers, not that, um, he doesn't have any fault. Certainly in this game in particular, he had fault on, on, on one of the goals, but, uh, it's interesting cause he doesn't necessarily strike me as the, the, the biggest vocal leader out there, but maybe I'm just not seeing it. Um, and, and that'll be interesting going forward because if, I guess if you're not going to give it to, uh, Dielno or De La Mea, then Farrell for his longevity here and for the position he plays, it, it somewhat makes sense, but it was a surprising move to me. Yeah, I would just say just for the longevity and uh, consistency uh, among all the inconsistency that we've seen over the years, I'm, I was actually kind of tickled to see him get that get that captain's armband because I think I think there's some crazy stat out there where he's played the most among among field players. He's played the most minutes since being drafted since 2013. So I think there's uh, I think you know for all the for all the knocks that we we kind of send his way. I think it's kind of it, it, there is something to be said about a guy who can who can actually do that who can actually stay on the field, stays healthy. Um, yeah, he's certainly prone to a to a gaff or two here and there, but the fact that he's kind of been the the kind of cons- most consistent presence over the last five five or six seasons is is kind of uh, it's kind of a credit to him. So I, I was I was actually kind of happy for him to see him wear the captain's armband uh, for the first time last night. Yeah, and uh, it's been a great season for Farrell. He got his first goal and he got his first game as captain. So uh, you got to feel good for him. He seems like a really likable guy, and um, you know I, I was a little surprised he got it too, um, but. You know, I'm not sure if there's a great choice for captain right now. I know you mentioned De La Mea, Sean, but um, I think he's kind of had his struggles this season. He's kind of been in and out of the lineup, and he's actually just as old as Farrell. They're both 26. Um, and Farrell, I think, has kind of been a uh, stable piece on the right side. He's kind of improved his passing. Um, I think maybe that Friedel sees behind the scenes he's been putting in some work and uh, kind of earns it. So I don't know if he's going to be keep the armband going forward. I think he'll certainly stay in the lineup. Um, but, uh, you know, he, he's... For considering at the beginning of the season, we talked about who's going to have more starts at the end of the season, Brandon Byer, Andrew Farrell. Now he's uh, got the captain's armband. Um, you know, he, he seems like a nice guy, and I'm really happy for him. So, yeah, good for him. Greg, you missed uh, De La Maya's birthday last month. He's now 27. Oh, well, you know what? I blame who scored because I'm looking at the Revolution <laughs> roster, and it says 26. So, I guess I need a new source of information. I guess we can't cite who scored anymore. Well, well uh, shout out to De La Maya for turning 27 on uh, June 10th. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and on that oh wow does, i'm really far behind so, and, oh and, and on that does anybody have any uh shout outs before we wrap up the show i want to give a shout out real quick to uh gene anderson uh just some continu uh, uh continuation from last week we asked he asked the question uh should he go to the red bulls game or should he stay at home and do something he enjoyed and uh he told us last week he was going to the red bulls game he went down in the pouring rain um, you know, probably wasn't as fun as he was hoping. He, uh, could have gone to the Foo Fighters instead, but you know what? He went to the game, uh, he supported the Revs and actually we should give a shout out to all 700 people who went down and, uh, supported the Revs. It was kind of crappy weather, but, um, really strong turnout for a visiting side and, uh, yeah, cheers to you guys. Yeah, I was going to say that that was going to be my shout out to the, to the continued travel, uh, to the road support that the Revs have when they go over to Red Bull Arena. Obviously there's a, there's a ticket package in place that kind of like allows for that and, I think the club does a great job for allowing that to happen every every time the refs make that trip. So, um, shout out to all those fans who uh, who take advantage of that and uh, really make themselves. Uh, I know there have been games that we've seen on TV where they're actually louder than Red Bulls fans. So, 
big uh, big shout out to the Revs fans that made the trip last night. Yeah, I know. It's it's always great to see the the Revolution fans make the trip down to Rebel Arena, and their support there is amazing. And I was I was glad to see um, a lot of the players comment on that after the game and how much that support means to them. It's just disappointing that the Revolution, with the exception of that playoff win, you know, the biggest biggest game they played down there, uh, otherwise have never gotten a victory at Rebel Arena. So the fans have gone down there and, and seen some some of the not best performances, but. Uh, always out there loud and, and strong, especially in the, the rain um, on Saturday night, which was which was great to see. Um, and with that, the Revolution are off next weekend. Uh, they don't play again until, what is it, August 4th, I believe, against uh, Orlando. Yeah, August 4th in Orlando. So we'll, we'll see what happens this week. If the Revolution make any signings or do anything notable, perhaps we'll, we'll be doing a podcast next week. And if the Revolution do nothing this week, uh, I think we'll probably take next week off. And thanks again to Brian and Greg for joining us. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at Revolution Recap. You can follow Brian at Brian O'Connell 21. You can follow Greg, who already plugged his own Twitter earlier, at GJohnstone12. And you can follow me at Sean L. Donahue. And of course, uh, you can follow us on Facebook as well at Revolution Recap. Um, where we will be hopefully posting more in the future and taking more advantage of that. Thanks again for listening.